Hello and welcome to Got the Runs. Yeah, was comic. that supposed to be someone? What? <laughs> that just had a little Mrs. Doubtfire on it. I've received this criticism before. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Introduce the podcast for once in your I life. Feel, what? Huh? I feel like I do that every episode. Other people will agree with me. Uh, hello. <laughs> Greetings. <laughs> and welcome to Got the Runs, the podcast with all the sexual chemistry of the fairy bomberman and the ninja bomberman. <laughs> Chicken and cheese. Sure. Or no, um, eggs, eggs and uh, eggs and milk. Which one is it where they list the ingredients? Milk and eggs. Milk and eggs, yeah. Gelato. <laughs> <laughs> you really threw me off my game there. Uh, this has got the runs. You are David. We are here discussing our third episode of our... Well, we're not discussing it, we're recording it. But our third episode of our Brian Leo Valley series, we are covering books three and four of the Scott Pilgrim franchise, the media empire, uh, and of course, it really we know is the a titles. multimedia, uh, a multi multimedia. Mm-hmm. Lots of lots of forms of media. Are we going to do an episode on the video game? No, <laughs> <laughs> not even as a joke. <laughs> yeah, no, hard no on that one for me. We are covering the third and fourth books of the comic series. They are, of course, titled Scott Pilgrim and the Infinite Sadness, and Scott Pilgrim gets it together, respectively. I'm, again, reading the color edition. You are, again, reading the black and white, I imagine. I am, indeed, B&W to the core. Sure. Pacific Northwest. (laughs) (laughs) This episode, I feel, is going to have quite an energy to it, and by energy, (laughs) quite a low energy... Slightly unfocused, perhaps, unlike our usual episodes, which are tight. We're a little loopy today. I had to get up early and record another podcast. Shout out to High Floor, Low Ceiling. I'm just like this. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But, you know, this is a classic middle chunk of of the multi-part, the multi-episode, you know what I mean, coverage of the same book. (laughs) We're in the middle. We can afford to be a little loopy. I'm guessing this will be a shorter episode. That's what you think. That's what I pray, certainly. <laughs> the Strangers pray at night. Uh, you ever think about how they made a sequel to The Strangers, like, ten years later? Uh, that's the one where they have the bags on their head? Yes. Very popular correct. Halloween costume when I was in high mm. school. Just sort like of bag on your head and, like, come to school. <laughs> yeah, and then pray at night. Yeah. With an A. I pray. Yeah. Sort of a reverse Ramadan situation. <laughs> sure. We are talking about those, yes. Let's kick it right off. I'm interested to hear from you what you thought about the pacing of these, because we were talking on the last episode how you were kind of surprised how much, like, sort of the slice of life stuff is part of the first two books. And then I was amused to get into these two and see that, like, volume three, obviously this is a bit of a misrepresentation, but volume three is almost, like, entirely, like todd oriented in in one way or another obviously like it's really more envy oriented but Mm -hmm. but the like conflict with todd via envy is like the entire book and then volume four is like 90 percent slice of life stuff (laughs) then like occasionally roxy is like i'm also here um and then like scott isn't even the one who fights her yeah well the thing about 
volume three in particular, and we can do our uh, plot summary perhaps in a moment. But the thing about volume three in particular is like, it is and it isn't plotty, I think, is the thing. Because it is very like, it explores a lot of things. We get the backstory between Scott and Envy. There's the whole like, because I think like this is where the book really starts to like find its ensemble and sort of find like the whole web of people because you know one of the things that i enjoy most about a book with an ensemble is like the way that interactions between different characters will sort of like i always imagine it as like that's like pulling at the web and that causes like certain parts to become slack and other parts to like become to have tension and so i think that that's really what the, the these two volumes are really effective at is sort of finding all of the interconnections. Like we start to see Ramona become a lot more integrated into the ensemble as opposed mm-hmm. to just being like a satellite where like she's, she's with Scott and then Scott is like connected to the rest of the web. We like see her relationship with Kim developing. We see her become friends with Wallace, which is a fun dynamic. True. And in general, like all of the, what you would call plot is really linked to like, the social interconnectivity and the relationships between the characters. And so I think that that sort of finds the middle ground where like, it is like, <laughs> it is slice of life, but it's also the plot. If that makes sense that like, it all relates back to like the social connections between the characters and then the battle stuff and the more fantasy stuff becomes like more of the like aesthetic set dressing right. for the relationships. Right. And even like, like the conflict with Todd, which is like much more so a, a like sort of protracted fight than I think pretty much any of the other ones we've seen so far, and including uh, the Roxy fight. But it's it's almost like a counterpoint to the sort of like interpersonal conflicts that are I think sort of like exemplified in the like right after the show when they go and sit um, in like the green room. And there's like all these panels of people just like staring at each other and like all the like different ways that like the the lines of sight like crisscross and like who's looking at who and who like greets who and all of that, which of course underlies, you know, the eventual physical confrontation. But it's a, it's a lot of sort of like fleshing out the relationship dynamics that sort of brought bring all these people into this room together and ultimately lead to that conflict beyond just you know the the premise of the book with the fighting of the evil exes but sort of the other things that would probably have like even in a a (laughs) non-fantasy world where there wasn't uh like some sort of imperative for scott to have to fight todd these people all still sort of like would have ended up in conflict with each other in one way or another because of yeah, all the ways that their lives sort of intersect and the relational quagmire between them all. Hey, giggity, giggity. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> yeah, because, like, another thing is that, you know, I, I do often come back to the movie, like, like I said in the last episode, like, I've certainly seen the movie a lot more than I've read any of the books. And so comparing this to the movie, this is by far the part that gets the most truncated in the movie, where we don't, you know, all the flashback stuff, like, we mostly don't get, like, when Ramona is sort of recounting stories about her exes, we kind of get, like, a sort of, like, animation-y... They do, like, the, like, he punched a hole in the moon thing, but... Yeah, yeah. 
and like the Matthew Patel stuff that gets like a flashback as well but certainly not Scott's relationship with Envy we don't really get to see much of that in yeah the, it's a uh, lot more implicit I think yeah and then the the encounter itself like you never get past the like green room setting that's when like that whole battle happens yeah, and, and crazy then that's that they also... don't do the honest ends sequence <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about honest ends a place i've never been and uh never will r.i.p yeah, r.i.p i have been there oh i think like 15 years ago sure but i have almost no memory of it <laughs> probably sure because it freaking zonked my brain sure it is like it's uh, and then like also other parts get sort of like amalgamated like the there's like a fight between ramona and envy that sort of becomes mashed up with the fight between a fight between ramona and roxy Mm -hmm. and then also (laughs) i think they also do they do the the where like ramona's like directing scott's hands thing which is from the free comic book uh, story i don't have any recollection of that <laughs> sure and the and the back of the knee thing yes. is roxy in the movie and it gets yeah. envy in the book like there's there's a lot of things where it's it sort of gets greatly truncated and so i think that giving it the space to breathe compared to the movie does is like to its benefit because i think that like i think this is really the volume and like we, we see signs of it certainly in the first two volumes but like I think sort of it starts to be more about Scott's personal development and also like sort of trying to depict a a real relationship in a lot of ways and like the ways that like a relationship can be unenjoyable, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, just like getting past the like romantic ideal that he has had in his mind and then into sort of more the practicalities of actually being in a relationship with someone and especially a relationship like Scott and Ramona's where they both have a lot of like unresolved issues with previous relationships and are not really like open with each other about those issues and how that also sort of like complicates their dynamic and injects this uh like these these opportunities for tension or conflict that when Scott is just like wow she's like the hot American girl who rollerblades through my dreams he is not like I wonder what her emotional baggage is like (laughs) and then has to confront it when she has emotional baggage yeah and there's sort of like this this element of sort of i mean i the scene after the green room scene when they are sort of clearly like in a fight but not in a fight it sort of like exemplifies that to me where it's like ramona is like tired and cranky and also like kind of mad at scott about envy but then also like kind of recognizes that her anger is like not necessarily totally justified. And it seems like, you know, maybe I'm reading into this, but like, seems like she is also like kind of mad at herself. Like that classic where like you are angry, but then you recognize that your anger is misplaced. And so you become angry at yourself for being angry. Like we get all of that, like all lumped into this one sort of event. And I think that like, that's the kind of complexity that this book is like really good at depicting i feel like yeah it definitely like starts to 
flesh flesh everybody out and in ways that are like like when you meet scott he doesn't seem like a character who can be fleshed out because (laughs) he like has the depth of a puddle but i think that like i i especially i'm thinking of sort of like the sequences of scenes where he kind of like unfolds scott and envy's relationship and he like realizes that envy is cheating on him and i think that that is a scene that's really effective in terms of being like listen just because scott is like kind of dumb (laughs) and surface level like there's ways in which like when you put him into different situations that don't call for him to be happy-go-lucky that it it plays out in different ways that uh, kind of like give some depth to the character that i don't think you necessarily expect to be there yeah, absolutely. And I like, think like also, he's kind of like not he's not dumb enough to actually be like fully two dimensional, if that makes sense. No, that definitely makes sense. And I also think that a lot of what the book explores, like I mean, I think a lot of the book in general is about like like you said, like it's about emotional baggage. It's about like sort of the scars that like people have left on each other, especially like within this social web, like with Scott he has these like (laughs) emotional connections, especially to like the women in the group and like all the stuff with Lisa. I feel like that's sort of like Scott. I think like if Scott has a fatal flaw, it's like his sort of carelessness and the way that he can like leave these scars on people and like not even recognize that he's done something hurtful. And then that is sort of like, it's, it's like what makes him lovable in a way, but then also it makes him like incredibly frustrating in a lot of other ways. Yes, he's like completely self-absorbed. And when that is like not <laughs> when other people's like feelings and relationships are not at stake, it's very funny and like charming in a certain way. And when they are, it's like very pitiful and <laughs> annoying. Yeah, I'd say like it's not it's not even lack of self-awareness, although I think he does also have lack of self-awareness. I think like just like lack of awareness in general is like how I would describe him. And that's yes. not like that's not something that's specific to his relationships. Like he just constantly seems to be like distracted by other things, it feels like. Like he is just very he is very good at getting into like an empty headspace. Like there's the scene where they're recording and he's like, I zoned out for a second listening to this song. Who's this song by? And it's by them. And so like, yeah, I just think that that is sort of like his defining characteristic. And then sort of realizing, you know, obviously like I think Scott Pilgrim gets it together is a very like apt title because that is sort of where, and not just him, but like all the characters sort of start, to move into like these new phases of their life and i think that that is like what the book is about as a whole is just like the difficulty of moving through life phases and like moving from young adulthood into like older young adult <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's it is kind of a coming of age story in a way in that like yes he's like in his early 20s but like developmentally is very much still a child in a lot of ways and like i think in some ways a lot of it is about going from being sort of like a passive viewer of your own life to the person who actually like makes the decisions in your life mm-hmm. where like I'm, I'm thinking about like the ways in which he unfolds like the genesis of like all of scott's relationships which he always is like 
it's a long story. And then it's like, like with Wallace, it's like, how did you become friends with that guy? It's like, it's a long story. And it's just like, they're sitting next to each other in class. And Wallace is like, what do you think of this class? And then in the exact same way as Lisa, he like comes over Scott like has no initiative (laughs) just playing games and someone who's like that guy's funny like just comes over and is like I'm here now and like I'm gonna hang out and we are now friends because I decided and uh, we we have seen a lot of Scott being very happy for his life to sort of unfold in that way and for other people to kind of direct him and just sort of like let let life come at him according to the sort of whims and feelings of other people and that is in a lot of ways like why his relationship with envy is so like uh, unhealthy or or i guess ruinous is because he doesn't really like direct any of it it just sort of like happens and when she gets tired of him it it is like very destructive for him and and like yeah a lot of the coming of age of the book is about how he has to play an active role in his relationship with Ramona and, you know, take initiative in various areas of his own life. Yeah. And not only initiative, but like responsibility as well, I think, because like it, what it feels like a lot of the time in the early going of things, is just like, because like, it's not that like he can't make decisions. It's just that like by choosing not to make decisions, it sort of like leaves him less on the hook for things because like when he, tries to make an active decision obviously like you kind of have to live with the consequences of your decision Mm -hmm. and so by like by not making those decisions he avoids the consequences which i think is what allows him to be sort of like happy-go-lucky and unaware and not really care about like other people's feelings like about kim's feelings for example and you know that that is something that he has to develop he has to get it together so to speak yeah and and it's like it's all like his his like self-absorption is also part of that because part of like being passive in that way means that he's never really thinking about how other people are being affected by the things that are happening he's only thinking about how those things affect him because he lives in like a completely sort of reactionary way where it's all based on like what am i feeling at this moment what am i thinking at this moment and then as soon as it stops being relevant he like forgets about it and we see that with like he doesn't even like recognize lisa who's like his best friend from high school and he's only 23 like it wasn't (laughs) that long ago right (laughs) like they were in a band together and like yeah he he just like completely once it once it stops having an impact on him it's like it no longer exists yeah and also like i think that to some extent maybe that is what like allows people to sort of like project things onto him because like i'm thinking about like his relationship with kim and like especially his relationship with lisa it feels like he is just sort of like like i mean like he seems like a nice enough guy but I feel like he is, like, very, like, baseline levels of acceptability. <laughs> like, <laughs> there is, like, a scene where he, like, it's, like, it's not entirely clear why Ramona likes him, I feel like. And I think we talked about that in the last episode some. But, yeah, just, like, the fact that, like, because he is, like, not an actively terrible person <laughs> and, like, doesn't really have any, like, defining characteristics of his own, that that allows you to, like, sort of see anything you want in him, which is, I feel like is kind of, like, what Lisa sees, where it's, like, they don't really have a reason to have a connection necessarily, but for some reason, Lisa, you know, we, we get some insight to Lisa's feelings, and mm-hmm. she feels this, like, attraction towards Scott that is, like, 
not really like clearly motivated by anything other than he, like him yeah, existing. He, he I was trying I was thinking about this between between our recordings where I was like, is Scott a himbo? <laughs> because oh. he has like a certain himbo energy, but he's not Certainly. like uh, you know, he doesn't he doesn't I wouldn't have necessarily been like, you know, the classic himbo, Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> but it's like he's he seems relatively attractive. He like plays in a band. Yeah. I feel like he he's, is like, he's like he's like alt himbo in <laughs> in a sort of way where it's like he does seem to have like a certain charisma um, where even though people recognize that like at, at some level he's kind of vapid and like there's not much to him, he's not actively malicious and he is like you know he he's charming he's like fun to be around he he can be like very nice and and sweet when he like thinks to be and so people are sort of drawn to him and it it's only when or or like i guess if they if they fail to kind of realize that like that's sort of as far as it goes for him then those are the people who get hurt. But the people like Wallace who just sort of understand like there's a certain amount of this relationship that I have to be okay with just sort of like carrying and like being the one who, you know, <laughs> deals with or, or taking care of, then they get along fine. And like, I think Wallace is in that zone. I think we'll see like Kim was like hurt by him, but then sort of was like, well, it's not the end of the world. Now that I sort of like see who he is, we can coexist and, and have a positive relationship again. I, I guess you could like Stephen Stills maybe is just like not <laughs> involved enough for him to like really care. Like as long as Scott sort of like plays the bass and it remains like a chill guy to be around, he kind of doesn't care about the rest. <laughs> yeah, like we, we certainly see him become frustrated with scott at times like mostly in things to deal with the music but yeah i mean like what you're describing kind of is like classic og like hot person privilege where it's like <laughs> everyone's nice to me and like i don't really have why to. why like, is that <laughs> yeah it's like i don't have to work to like contribute to this relationship and it's like right and and he's not thoughtful enough to kind of like understand why that would be happening and we do see like even just like strangers in the mall who will be like that guy's cute yeah and like i think i definitely like the movie or the book uh like wants us to think that he's cool or that like he is seen as cool at least um by like the average person right I guess, yeah. I, it's it's hard to sort of like fully gauge because I like I don't know if anyone really thinks he's cool other than Knives and like maybe Young Neil. Like, he's it's, like it's the it's, least cool, cool guy. Yeah, I guess. Or or he's like the kind of cool that when you get a little older, you realize is actually not that cool. And so his peers, like I don't, I think they think that he is like fun and they like him but i don't know if they think that he's cool whereas like the younger characters do think that he's cool because they don't really necessarily like understand the dynamic of the group and like the role that scott fills in it yeah absolutely shall we do the plot summary sure you want this one or uh shall i <laughs> i think i did it last time so you can you can take this one okay well we open up uh well start the clock first of all Good afternoon. We open up at 
the Clash at Demon Head show, uh, which the gang stays behind, and we get the backstory a little bit of Ramona and Scott that they met at university, were in a band together, dated, broke up. Scott. Envy and Scott, yes. Um, Because of Scott's haircut. Um, (laughs) And we also get some of the Ramona and Todd backstory, which was that they went to high school together and dated, and he blew a hole in the moon for her. They are supposed to fight, so they schedule a time for them to battle at Honest Ed's, which they do, but that, uh, like feet is ruled moot because todd cheats with his vegan powers they ultimately fight again and todd is overwhelming with his vegan powers but the vegan police take them away because he ate dairy products envy finds out that he cheated on her and also did the moon thing with ramona as well i'm already past the minute mark so she also turns on him everyone is uh, hurt but ultimately in a better place to no longer be associated with each other todd is defeated And then we go to volume four, where it is the height of summer. It's very hot. Scott and Wallace uh, have to have a meeting with their landlord because he wants to, like, raise the rent or something, I think. Um, Anyway, Scott is basically told that he has to get a job and (laughs) sort of, like, figure himself out. So he gets a job with uh, Wallace, uh, Stephen Stills at his restaurant, um... But there is also lots of conflict with Ramona because his old friend Lisa is back in town and they are spending a lot of time together and she's suspicious of that. They have a big fight that leads to Scott uh, spending the night at Lisa's where they discuss their romantic potential that was unrealized and ultimately do not realize it. Scott goes back to Ramona uh, and in there somewhere they fight (laughs) Roxy. He gets fired from his job and rehired at his job and he fights Snives Chow's dad at one point. And at the end, yeah, it's a crazy volume four is kind of crazy, but also I think my favorite one so far. Um, But at the end of that one, it it kind of ends with like Scott and Ramona have like gotten over a like rough patch, and they're kind they seem to be like set up for smooth sailing for a little bit, with like no exes imminently on the horizon. Oh, and Gideon makes like a cameo at one point. (laughs) That's in volume three, though. Yeah, uh, yeah, it is. It's at their show. He's at their show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot going on. There is. I reminded myself of an important question that I want to pose to you. Where did Scott go to university? Do we think? Because and what did he take? <laughs> I mean, is oh, we do we know? Do we know who he went to university with? He went to university with, with Wallace, Wallace for sure. Envy, uh, Julie, Stephen Stills, and maybe Kim. So, I mean, he probably went to Ryerson, or, uh, excuse me, Toronto Metropolitan University. Is that didn't... what they're going with? Oh, you didn't Hadn't know about this? The, didn't, didn't hear that, no. I thought the exact same thing. He he struck me as a rag guy, <laughs> as they were once known. Yes, uh, yes, Toronto Metropolitan University, since I'm a uh, an alumna I can uh, give my thoughts on this. Uh, my thoughts are boring, but better than the alternative to boring. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, like, so Scott seems definitely like that's like that's the one. I don't like Wallace Wells. 
Wait, is his name Wallace? It's, it is Wallace Wells, right? <laughs> You're not I think just there's a, Steven Stelzing him? Yeah, I think there's a blooper in volume one that I noticed where like his name on the mailbox is Wallace Weldon or something like that. And it confused me. Anyways. It is Wallace Wells. Yeah, Wallace Wells, like... You can go to, yeah. you can go to TMU. I guess. I, I guess maybe maybe this is me uh, stereotyping him as a gay man that I'm like, he seems like a Sheridan guy. <laughs> I think that there were plenty of queer people at TMU. And yeah, Maya. I think I, I think you're right, but I, I don't. Yeah. Anyways, what if uh, what if it started going by Solani University because it's TMU? <sighs> I just need to let that one sit in silence <laughs> for a little while. Uh, okay, and the follow up question is: What do we think that they took? Like, what was the class that they were in together? Well, surely it was like an intro, like yeah, compulsory first to, year kind of course. Because yeah. Wallace's job is he works at a call center. Yeah, like they're none of them are using their degree as far as I no, can no, tell. no, no. Wallace seems like an English major, probably, but then yeah, also like, or like he, communications, maybe. Yeah, because like communications is like the more practical cousin of the English major, I think. <laughs> and I do not comment. <laughs> you pretend you do not see it, certainly. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that maybe that's like, it's like they were in some kind of like writing class together, maybe. Right. Or like a social science something, something. Yeah. That like, yeah certainly, I <laughs> certainly, I don't think anyone in this comic like has you don't think there's any engineers in this group <laughs> i think they all have bas i'll put it that way <laughs> uh is there like no because steven would have been steven stills would have been at the same university wherever it was i was like is one of those schools have like a well-known music program or anything like yeah i was like i don't think they were in music because i think we would hear about it more yeah, well, I don't. Yeah, I definitely don't think Scott was because I feel like the implication slash explicit thing throughout is like he's not really that good <laughs> at at music, but he's like available and enthusiastic. Yeah. Well, I was I was curious reading this. Did you uh, famously you are a drummer by trade, but mm-hmm. you also took up the bass slap at the bass yes was this was this linked to scott fogram at all who famously transitioned from being the drummer to being the bassist uh no that i i think i started playing bass before i read scott pilgrim um that was mostly just like i was like i would like to play another instrument other than piano (laughs) but i did clock that because I was amused we were talking about Arcade Fire as a possible um, comparison point for Clash at Demon Head. And then I was like, oh, and their high school band has like, or their their college band has like eight people in it, including a violin player and like a bongo player and a kazoo player. And I was like, okay, that is extremely Arcade Fire. Yes, I had this thought as well. But so so I was like, well, there's certainly a certain amount of like he's he's kind of parodying the whole sort of like Canadian indie scene. I think yes, there that. were a few that Arcade Fire, far from the only Canadian indie band to gain popularity in the late <laughs> '90s slash early 2000s to have a With large like way collective too many members and yeah, some and like people diverse who instruments. <laughs> yeah, and like people who it's like their specific role is like not entirely clear. <laughs> right, exactly. So I think like. Yeah, they're, they're, I don't think they're a 
a version of anyone specifically yeah put on blast but yeah and yeah that's like a whole interesting thing as well is that like the way that scott like doesn't go through with the band which like we're we're meant to believe that like it's sort of like envy signs a record contract and then like the band is kind of formed around her i guess in terms of clash of demon head becoming a thing yeah, like, I'm not really clear, like, I think part of it is sort of ambiguous, and like, it's not necessarily supposed to be like a Clash at Demon Head story so much as it is, Envy was talented, and people recognized that, and like, one way or another, she was going to become a professional musician, and so it's it's less so about like, here's how like Clash of Demon Head came about, and more right. so about this sort of like, sliding doors moment where... Scott and Stephen Stills, like, because I, I think if it was just like, and the the band is going to form around Envy or like, you know, like I feel like if if Clash of Demon had sprung like immediately out of that, that Stephen Stills would have like stayed involved. Sure. Like I don't think he likes Scott so much that he's like, yeah, I'm gonna not become a professional musician. <laughs> yeah, but then do we know what happens to Kid Chameleon? Then like, do, I I don't know. I don't remember if there's something that I forgot where it's like it explains how they like didn't become to be because like it definitely does not seem like you know this sort of gets back to the idea of like scott like having as little like responsibility and role of consequence as possible (laughs) that like the band could have survived without scott yeah definitely like i i and i think that that is why i'm sort of like you know there's there's more to it than just like scott said no so like nothing came of it like i think that it's more likely that envy like kind of quit the band as part of her her sort of like exodus from that whole sort of like era of her life that whole social circle so like i think i think if the opportunity was there for like kid chameleon to go forward without scott steven stills would have like been a part of it yeah so i think it's more likely that she was like i'm big timing the entire band as like an extension of scott and like i'm out and then, like, I don't know, maybe maybe the record label does then be like, well, who else could you play with? Maybe she, like, moves back to Montreal after university and, like, Todd is there and they reconnect and are like, hey, let's do our own thing. And because there's already people interested, she's just like, I've got a new band, come see us. And it's all, like, kind of accelerated because she's already sort of, like, on the radar. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Do we want to talk about the whole relationship with scott and envy because like it's an interesting sort of dynamic between them where it's like i mean i mean like maybe maybe this is sort of about like scars that people leave on each other as well because like at the start it's it's almost like a knives chow situation where envy is like sort of like uh not homely but like a homebody she doesn't like going out drinking Mm -hmm. she is like a big nerd and then she, like, becomes friends with Scott, she likes hanging out with Scott, and then they, like, start doing this band thing together, then they get together, and then, I don't know, like, uh, what are we supposed to make of, sort of, like, Envy's role? In the- because, like, I think, pretty unequivocally, she is made out to be, like, a villain in the relationship, certainly, like, even if you can say, like, Scott's probably a bad boyfriend, like, Scott's probably, like, XYZ, like, she pretty clearly is, like, a bad person <laughs> within the context <laughs> of the relationship, like, she doesn't say she loves him, she, like, is cheating on him the whole time, mm-hmm. 
And so, like, I don't, I just, I'm not sure what we're meant to make of that in terms of, like, did Scott, like, is it sort of like Scott created a monster kind of thing? Yeah, I think, so I think that part of the function of it is to sort of, like, prepare some of the, the like, groundwork of, like, reinforcing Scott as sort of, like, a very innocent kind of figure in some ways where, like, I think that we'll, we'll talk about it a lot more in volume five, but I think that volume five is really the one where he like kind of blows up the image of Scott as sort of like, not to say that there haven't been lots of like hints and clues, which we've talked about throughout, but where he really sort of like destroys the illusion of Scott as like an, a completely innocent person or an uncomplicated person by showing like, you know, some of, some of the wreckage that is behind him. But I think that by showing what he shows of the relationship with Envy at this point, it's supposed to sort of reinforce the image of Scott as kind of like the hapless innocent where it's like, hey, look, like he was actually genuinely into her and she just like scorned him. Mm -hmm. And I don't... from my recollection, I don't think that we necessarily see the relationship from like any other angle. So I don't think it's necessarily that like Scott created a monster, but I do think that there's an element where we can say like from Scott's perspective, um, the problem with their relationship was that envy changed, but we can tell that like envy also has like some obvious hurt from that relationship as well. And with kind of like the hindsight of knowing what we know about Scott, I think we can say that like Scott also failed to change. And that was just as much of a problem in the relationship as, as envy changing. And not to say that like, again, like I think she obviously is like, (laughs) doesn't handle the dissolution of their relationship in a very positive way. And like, I think that there is a certain amount of like, you know the whole the whole like sudden rise to fame uh it takes its its sort of toll on her personality and her relationships with lots of different people but i do think that like i don't think we're supposed to see scott as like 100% victim yeah i think that it's just like the extent you know obviously i don't really remember like the full how it all breaks down like going forward so i'm kind of coming at this with fresh eyes i just i don't I think that maybe if that's the intent, if it's sort of to show that, like, you know, I think it's pretty obvious at this point that, like, Scott is, like, probably not an enjoyable person to be in, like, a romantic relationship with. <laughs> but then it feels like the, like what they depict of Envy is, like, it's so cold. Like, she's so cold and like like you said like she does change but it's like she was kind of always maybe not always but like for for a while <laughs> it seems like she is like cold to him and like sort of dismissive of him and like i feel like it maybe just goes a little too far if we're meant to take from it like either they both made mistakes in the relationship or that like scott kind of like indirectly led to this like yeah like i guess i don't think that he's necessarily trying to take it to that extent or to to like center stage it in that way like i definitely think that the main focus of it is meant to be like the envy mistreated scott fairly badly and it messed him up pretty good but but i do i just think that like it's 
something that is mostly in the background and mostly implicit, but it's very obvious, um, in my opinion, at least from their sort of like whole goodbye thing that like, she is also kind of like carrying some hurt from that relationship. And even though we don't necessarily ever get it like, you know, explored or explained in detail, I think that it just sort of ties into the overarching kind of theme throughout the books about like the risks and like pitfalls of viewing oneself as sort of like this this heroic character like or the main character in the story is that like there are some things that you do that hurt people that you never even become aware of and as much as scott's journey is sort of about learning that he's like not the main character so to speak that that development comes at a point in his life where we just know there are things that he will never be able to like really comprehend what his role was in them and so i think that that's sort of how the the like envy sort of side of things plays into it insofar as like that that particular theme i don't think that's like the primary function of her or of this volume but i think that it's sort of like a breadcrumb that is there yeah i think you're right and like i said like I think by now we know enough to be like, well, <laughs> Scott probably, like, Scott did something. I mean, like, regardless of whether he did well, anything, failed even, to do something is yeah, more. <laughs> regardless yeah. of whether he did anything, like, you're not probably getting, like, everything you need emotionally out of a relationship with Scott. Do we want to talk about the Honest Ed set piece? Is there something else <laughs> that sticks out to you? Um, I was thinking about the uh, like sudden explosion in supernatural powers and like <laughs> not not just supernatural powers, but like I feel like the first two volumes, you know, there's plenty of uh, obviously like the magical realism and stuff, but in volumes like three and four, we get like so many more jokes. It feels like about like Todd's vegan powers, obviously, is one, but then like. Uh, Wallace is also dating a psychic and they also allude to like uh, like gay tantric powers <laughs> um, right. and then we meet Roxy who is half ninja uh, just like lots of things like that where it's like these crazy ideas about like the society as these characters like live in or exist in it that, that I, I don't have anything like to say about that per se i was just kind of like wow there's like a lot more of this i think than i originally sort of like clued in on yeah i think it sort of palpably starts to like settle into what it is a lot more in these books like it does it does feel like i did enjoy these a lot more than the first two just because i feel like they sort of flow better and know what they are a little more and it, it integrates like you said like the existence of like superpowers and magic and like I mean, like, Knives Chow's dad is just, like, a samurai ninja for no reason. And, like, I feel like it, it integrates all that stuff in, like, a more entertaining way to some extent. It also, you know, like, we see more of, like, the video game jokes start to come up. Like, we talked about how it's, like, not really a video game book in the first two volumes. But, like, you have the stuff like the save point, the extra life, uh, the P-bar, of course, which is a classic... Uh, bit from the movie makes its appearance here and so i feel like it it does it's interesting because it's like as it becomes less of a book about those things and like less of a book about like it becomes less focused on like the battles i think and especially because like 
people aren't showing up to fight and then there's a fight scene it's like especially with todd but then also with roxy like the conflict is more integrated throughout the entirety of the volume where like like i think todd gets introduced at the end of book two right mm-hmm. and so like you see him like very fully integrated throughout book three as part of the plot rather than it being like one climactic fight scene and then in between they're like doing other stuff yep <laughs> sorry i'm just looking at the honest dead scene <laughs> <laughs> which is demented it's it's mildly demented i i i am like i'm not surprised well i guess i am surprised sorry because like the envy relationship feels so foundational to like what the book is about to some extent because like i said like it's sort of like a a second coming of age kind of story in the sense that like it's about like the transition from like your first set step of adulthood which is like you're in university you're living like away from your parents and like developing as a person and then this is like the transition from like that period of your life where you don't really have like the same kind of responsibilities that you do as an adult to mm-hmm. full on adulthood. And so I feel like the like envy relationship and sort of the baggage that comes along with that is like a very important counterpoint or accompaniment to Ramona's exes, which is like sort of a more textual implementation of like that idea right yeah and like there is also a lot of stuff in volume three especially about like infidelity and cheating in relationships and like how scott has uh there's, there's a lot of cheating which also is like you know he the whole the whole like thing with knives and like their relationship status and the timing of his relationship with ramona and all that like laying a lot of groundwork as far as that goes to be like you know scott was cheated on it really like messed him up envy was cheated on it really messed her up and he like sees that and understands it and then when like he sees that roxy has been staying with ramona he gets the glow head which is a great bit but he it like you know it's it's still hasn't like connected with him that like how he handled his relationship with knives would also like fall into that same camp and would have a similar effect on the people who are involved. So yeah, there's, there's some, some sort of preparation work there for some of the ways in which he still has to grow, even as he has like sort of started to find some ways in which he can mature, especially in volume four, which is so much about his sort of like, coming to to more fully understand or appreciate his feelings for Ramona um, and getting over sort of like the fear or pain of uh, expressing love that he's carrying from envy, like all that stuff. Yeah, I think like volume four, that's why I am really interested to see how it sort of plays out in the other two volumes, because like, I think the movie, it's sort of by by definition it can't really do this because it's just one movie and not a series of books but like these books especially like it feels like scott has his own arcs within these books where Mm -hmm. like volume three is like so much about his relationship with envy and sort of like he allows himself to process that he allows himself to like confront that that happened rather than having it be like 
she and like it certainly humanizes envy as well like it turns her from just like this figure of darkness in scott's life to like this happened and like yes she definitely like did some morally wrong things but it does like put her in a lot more context that that we previously didn't have for her and then volume four uh, I forget what I was talking about. Well, I have an important volume four related question. Have you had Lixburger? No, I don't know what that is. Uh, see, I'm confused or I get confused a lot because I'm like, isn't that an LA thing? But then I'm like, no, that's like pink burger or pink's burger or something. But then I'm like, but wait, there's like a pink burger in Hamilton as well where I, I live. But I'm like, obviously that's not the same. I don't know what pink burger is <laughs> okay. la has Vamp while i google well there's pink's hot dogs right which is in los angeles but then i yes, also think there's maybe a that's what i'm thinking about in hamilton as well there is a pink's in hamilton but it's a burger place right um and then there's pink berry which is uh frozen yogurt isn't that a fro yeah okay but just that that pink burger and pink berry sound familiar and those might be uh what you're conflating i guess Lixburger is a chain a lot of these appear to be permanently closed or has, yeah it it appears to now only have one location still standing <laughs> Uh-oh. uh the chain also had what was described as a quote zany in-store experience oh boy <laughs> oh see this is the, yeah i think we're just a little too young to like have have had the opportunity to like engage with licks like i I recognize the logo and this sounds very familiar to me which is uh the zany in-store experience includes employees singing pop songs sometimes with modified lyrics while they cooked burgers and fries and i do kind of remember that sort of like being a thing yeah, and I'm I'm looking at you know I I can see where they almost certainly went, <laughs> um, like there's the the area of Toronto known as the beaches, yeah, and there is a licks that is like right by there, so it's it's very clear <laughs> that this is like where they went. I mean, again, like this is very full of them talking about <laughs> locations that I'm familiar with, like they talk about Saint Clair, which is the like main thoroughfare closest to me and like about the hairdressers on st Clair, like there's there's we've talked about this already but there's a lot of direct reference to like my neighborhood in a very weird way yes yeah so anyways licks that's uh that's certainly a thing that is in there but volume four which has so much lisa Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> and she's she's tearing me apart. Sure, she does look like <laughs> that Lisa as well, kind of. So I guess Lisa is sort of representative. It's like uh, I think you know to some extent she's like a knives chow, right? Where she is like it's a test of Scott's relationship in a lot of ways. Obviously, like the culmination of that is like him realizing that he loves Ramona and needs to like tell her that basically. But I think in a lot of ways she is like a knives chow because she is sort of like representative of regression in some ways. And I think also of like, it's, it's the classic, like when you're in a relationship, you start (laughs) thinking about like the other relationships you could be having or like the other people you could be with. And so she is sort of like 
she's a regression to like his high school self, but then she's also like unrealized potential from high school in a lot of ways, which I think Knives serves the role of as well. But this is more like directly in dialogue with like his relationship with Ramona as well. Right. Like like Knives in some ways is sort of like like pining for the the good old days or like if if scott (laughs) it can be conceived of as a guy who kind of like peaked in high school in some ways Mm -hmm. then like yeah dating knives maybe is a bit of a throwback to that whereas to like have lisa back in the picture yeah i think is is sort of a catalyst for both like kinds of like the road not taken type of thoughts um that that spring from sort of like his high school life but also i think sort of surfaces some of the tensions that we talked about in his relationship with ramona that are uh, like as much driven by her as by him right because like his relationship with Lisa for most of the time is like pretty innocuous as far as those things go, at least on his end. Mm -hmm. But Ramona is kind of like upset by it or suspicious of it sort of like right from the jump. Uh, But like, doesn't necessarily have like a great reason to be and never actually kind of like directly addresses it with Scott. And so as much as like, it's, there for him to sort of like realize how strong his feelings for Ramona actually are it's also sort of there to like surface some of the issues that they are going to have to overcome in order to sort of like continue on regardless yeah and I guess to some extent it's sort of like it's representative of a fear of commitment maybe and that like she is sort of like the other option and I think like it's sort of, you know, in the same way that we talked about him sort of having to, like, take responsibility, I think him sort of having to, like, make a commitment to this relationship at the expense of another relationship is, like, a very real thing. Because, like, right, like, at he doesn't really, he doesn't do anything to encourage any kind of, like, romantic thing with Lisa, but it's sort of a situation where it's, like, his inaction sort of is, like... A wrong in some ways as well that like he like he allows it to continue to exist and then and like it's sort of like a mm-hmm. sin by omission sort of thing right right like he obviously knows that or not maybe he, i think that like if he was honest with himself he is aware that ramona is like not thrilled she certainly gives it even though she doesn't like address it with him explicitly she certainly gives him lots of cues that I think <laughs> a person with even like average emotional intelligence or, you know, knowledge of their partner could uh, extrapolate and understand sort of where those things are coming from. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, his, his failure to sort of like set any boundaries or have like any kind of open discussion with Ramona about it either also yeah, is, is a component of it. Yeah. And like, I don't think he is like, innocent in it as well i feel like it's like like he is like i think he enjoys it is what i will say yeah oh definitely he does like i think that they both get a certain like titillation out of it or thrill like lisa and scott both do yeah and you know we sort of lisa sort of says as much directly this volume sees the introduction of jason kim i knew a jason kim in (laughs) high school uh, I remember very distinctly <laughs> taking a screenshot of 
that panel where he's like jason kim he is he one of the participants in rock paper balls <laughs> no rock paper balls is before my time yeah rock paper so those of you familiar with the internet slash tosh.0 phenomenon rock paper balls uh the the twisted mind that brought you that uh is the brother of a good friend of ours who is kind of sandwiched right in between us in age uh which is why it's both after my time and before chris's time but uh boy if you haven't experienced rock paper balls do treat yourself uh, 10 minutes well spent <laughs> it is weirdly very long <laughs> it is it is insanely long what a what an era for internet videos vine really we owe a debt <laughs> i suppose so yeah <laughs> but then also i feel like no video was 10 minutes long at that time like that was like back when youtube had like the 10 minute upload limit and stuff yeah that's it yeah and i was also just thinking like as much as vine sort of made the like under one minute thing really kind of hit wasn't there also like like when yahoo was trying to do streaming stuff and stuff like that like everything was like here's a five minute episode because we know you can't spend more than five minutes watching a video on your computer well yeah the classic web series thing was always that like they were like 10 minutes long at most usually i'm restraining myself from singing the classic yahoo jingle uh do we want to talk about roxy because i feel like she is you know i think that it sort of is indicative of the book's changing interest to some extent that like Roxy, I guess she's not like a less fleshed out character than like Matthew Patel or Lucas Lee, but like she is kind of like treated pretty unceremoniously in this book, right? Like she like, I think the biggest thing is like, she is not even the biggest like battle based threat in this book. It's like Mr. Chow. Yeah, she she's almost like more so there for Ramona's development than for Scott's insofar as like, yeah, Ramona is the one who fights her. Ramona and her have this like emotional connection that Scott doesn't really like see much of or understand. And I feel like a lot of the stuff that happens with Roxy sort of like happens off page other than obviously like when she when she fights Ramona but yeah, yeah we, I feel like she's less so there for like in as as much as like Matthew and Lucas Lee and Todd all were very sort of like Scott focused and Scott oriented Roxy like barely interacts with Scott and and I think her role is a lot more Ramona related yeah like it's very interesting and, you know, maybe it, that's just it's just something we sort of have to, like, get to in the later books. But, like, it's, it's a, a, it's interesting that, like, we cut, like, it's sort of, she appears in the middle of a scene, like, Scott's at work. And then, like, mm -hmm. he sees the two of them are, like, together getting lunch or whatever. And are, like, talking, and they're, like, talking, like, about their relationship. Which is, like, yeah. more than what we see from any other character, certainly. And, like, just... It's interesting to me because it seems like her more than anyone would be a character where like this could be resolved amicably and doesn't necessarily like it, it's weird that she like dies <laughs> at the end of this this book is I guess what I'm getting at like it, it it feels strange it starts to feel strange here especially that like defeating these evil exes means like killing them <laughs> well I yeah 
I think that the relationship with death insofar as like the evil exes goes is kind of implicitly video gamey as sure. well. In that I don't think like she's dead, you know? You don't? I think she's more so just No, I think she like well, I don't know. Maybe she <laughs> I think I think it's one of those things that is left open-ended because it would be weird for her to be dead. <laughs> yeah, but well there's like there's a part where she says like during their battle she's like why are we even fighting? And like it, it's not entirely clear. And I don't know if that's intentional or if it's just like Brian the O'Malley like chafing against this sort of like thing he has set up for himself where like people have to fight with weapons and like defeat each other and cause and like cause one or the other to explode. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There is also uh, the, I found it interesting in the context of our conversation in the last episode, the exchange that they have about her being a half ninja and (laughs) Roxy's apparent uh, kind of like crisis of identity related to being half ninja, I thought was very, uh, a lot of subtext there sure absolutely yes again like another character where it's like is she white <laughs> well i think i think she's that more it's explicitly very interesting that no no i think that she is white and that that is like kind of an interesting part of it like i i think that there's more to it maybe than he even like necessarily intended insofar as like she's half ninja which is kind of like one of the touch point like <laughs> you know racist asian stereotypes that like i think is kind of like tangentially related to like oh you're asian you must know kung fu but she is like white and you know i think in with with everything that we talked about last time in terms of like how o'malley talks about perceiving himself and like the the pervasiveness of white culture in his life to that point i just think it's very interesting that there is a white character who's half ninja who like is very briefly addressed that there's some sort of like identity tension in her life related to being quote unquote half ninja uh that unfolds on the page but that like like i read an interview from right before this book came out uh in in between our two episodes where i was surprised to find it was for like a it was for like a toronto based like blog that they performed like after volume 2 came out so it was much more of a local kind of like you know the the like comics creator in our backyard and not so much the like the scott pilgrim sensation that's like sweeping the nation as more sort of like a like we sat down with a local artist that, right. like that kind of thing and it was before this volume because it, when they're talking in it they talk about like oh what other toronto landmarks are you thinking about like including in future volumes and he's like i think i might do a scene at the beaches anyways and that person asks him specifically like you're half asian uh it's a weird question i can't even remember exactly how it's phrased but he's kind of like you're half asian like what's the deal with that is it in your work at all and he's just kind of like no not really never really thought about it and so it's it's just funny that it's something that like he didn't really seem to give a lot of serious thought to until more sort of like around the movie and you know some of the like interactions and feedback that he heard from fans around that time. And yet right after he gave that interview or like he might've given that interview while working on this. And there's this like, we're talking about like one page, (laughs) but (laughs) ultimately it's not exactly like a huge thing, but I just thought it was funny that we had like this long conversation about it on the last episode. And then there's this thing that just does, you know, it seems like it has a lot of subtext to it. 
And yet I also don't think that he was really thinking about it in that way. And we also get like for the I mean, you know, like Matthew Patel is like South Asian as well, but it's the first time we get like a Southeast Asian character who is like depicted in a very manga way and like has like a katana and is like more of like a classic like shonen kind of character and is like very clearly like intentionally depicted that way as well like it's kind of like well it's like manga plus matrix plus like he looks like a dad (laughs) like he's wearing oh oh, wait i'm I'm talking about mr chow you're now talking about mr chow yes 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 that 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 we also get that in the same issue i think he's supposed to also be kind of like uh like yakuza type uh like yeah sort of sort of image or trope which is funny because he's chinese yes but it's also like you know it's it he has like the billowing cloak and the katana yeah yeah he looks like a naruto character yeah absolutely uh, he looks like Shino's dad. <laughs> if you want a specific pull, yeah, I mean it. It is very interesting how much that sort of like iconography is what pervades this book. Like there are, you know, like I think each character does sort of have their own specific iconography. Like Todd is kind of like a bit of a Superman. Obviously, like Brandon Roth playing in the movie is like a very direct like sort of analog to that and then also like he's a bit of like a a goku as well in terms of like the like hair standing up energy aura kind of thing yes which is something i enjoy like i do like the way that like the characters are given their own sort of like battle aesthetic in some way (laughs) and then like you know matthew patel is more of like a street fighter or like a fighting game kind of character where it's like he is like you you can picture his idol animation. <laughs> oh yeah. Where, like, he definitely. has like one and fist it, down and is sort of like bobbing back and forth. <laughs> yeah, and like the demon hipsters who would just like hover right above him yeah. and then like pop out when they do attacks super, things like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly. What else do we need to discuss here? Um I I'm just thinking about the art which I feel like just has like cleaned up a lot. Mhm especially from volume one as i said volume one looks like he drew it so fast not in like a rushed way so much as in a like i can barely control my hand (laughs) these ideas are like coming out of me so fast kind of way whereas i do feel like especially like by the time he gets to volume four it's a lot cleaner generally um and and just like i i think he does a lot of different things with like texture and the sort of like uh like different dots and patterns that he might use in the background or to shade characters or locations things like that just seem to be used in very different ways from what he was doing when the book started yeah and i don't know if it's a function of the art sort of being cleaned up as well but i did feel like the coloring felt a little bit more natural in this one i think part of it is like like i think it especially popped because like it's summer and like there's a lot of shots of like blue skies and like some more like sunshine and like more like they're outside a lot more especially compared to like volume three where like the whole thing takes place (laughs) in a club yeah exactly and just like in general like it feels a little more vibrant like i think again i don't know if it's the art or the coloring but like things like shadows like sort of make more sense and it gives it a little more texture 
rather than having the coloring feel kind of flat. And so I think that has taken a step up as well. Like I didn't really notice that like it wasn't it wasn't meant to be in color originally. I noticed that a lot mm-hmm. less in this issue in these set of issues than I did on the last episode. Right. But there is also yeah. <laughs> there's a very funny bit where the part where Ramona changes her hair color and then yes, at, and they go like is that your natural hair color and she's like I don't know it could be. <laughs> Um, <laughs> in the colored version, her hair is blue, <laughs> and so and so it still has the line, but it also ha- just has like a note, a little asterisk. This was funnier like, in black and white. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is a good bit. Yes, the one thing I do also want to talk about from the like towards the end of volume four is after he like discovers that Roxy has been staying with Ramona and kind of like wanders away in a daze. He has that like epiphany of like dark Scott. Yes. Nega Scott. I believe he is called in the, in the film. Nega Scott. That's right. Which I don't remember anything about, but I thought that was a good, a little sort of like, I don't know, foreshadowy type thing of like, yeah, it's, it, it is interesting because that is something in the movie that comes at the end like he sort of has like back-to-back like personal revelations which i think is like mm-hmm. it, it, it's an interesting thing about the movie and i think it works well in the movie that he like he has this one re- revelation like about his love but then like that's not enough he has to have like a second revelation and i feel like that's like what this is as well it's just more spaced out but yeah i was interested to see what happens with Nega Scott going forward because like it, that is kind of like all we see of him in the movie is like he appears and then he like earns the power of love and then, well, like with Nega Scott's like they just become friends but like right that that is sort of like the extent of their encounter and so I was wondering whether we would see that pop up again or like how much of like a realized character he is because he kind of just like destroys him or at least like sends him away yeah i think there is more to him in volume five is my recollection or maybe it's volume six but yes i think we do see more of him (laughs) scene in which he says am i just a pussy ramona and she replies you could be less of one i guess sure that is like kind (laughs) of where it's like it's like we like you but you could definitely stand to make some improvements. Um, the other thing I <laughs> and and like I think like the recognition. I think I think what like that line sort of communicates and what is sort of there throughout all of Volume Four, as far as his development goes, is that it's not like I think Volume Three is very sort of like focused on the ways in which he's kind of like oblivious, and then a lot of the growth in volume four is sort of the realization or the revelation of the degree to which like fear is an element of that and the ways in which that passivity that we've talked about and like that sort of self-absorption or unawareness of others are all sort of like defense mechanisms to a certain extent to help him manage these these sort of fears of putting himself on the line some of which are from envy and some of which are you know from from other things yeah and just because it feels sort of germane to the topic of negascott we also get the scene where he is in ramona's mind and we see the imagery of like her as like gideon's pet basically pet. <laughs> yeah and i i i just 
<laughs> it's certainly like very like evocative imagery. I think like the sort of like blank smile that she has is like a little is like a little bit like makes your skin crawl. Yeah, I mean, again, like I don't remember exactly how this all develops. I mostly like like there is like a moment like that in the book or in the movie rather, but it, it feels like there's some more complexity to it here, especially like the ways in which she like is content with it in some ways. And I guess that's why, like why the smile is so like disconcerting is because like, it's not only that, like this is something she thinks about, but that like, she is sort of like blissfully, (laughs) like not ignorant, but like, you know, like blissfully accepting of this is like what Mm -hmm. becomes off putting, especially for Ramona who like, we haven't known to be sort of as maybe well maybe we have as duplicitous as maybe Scott is to some extent even if Scott's is not yeah, like conscious I wouldn't, I wouldn't have yeah I wouldn't have said duplicitous but per like se. having the, these like these thoughts and not not like ulterior motives but do you know what I mean like right yeah like she has a she has not been open with Scott a lot of the time and doesn't seem to like feel that not not that she doesn't think that that's an issue but he never pushes her to sort of like reveal herself and she also has sort of like the safety of being with someone who doesn't really challenge her in that way yeah which maybe is is part of some of the appeal of scott yeah i guess (laughs) to her initially i guess that is i think that's a good read on sort of what we see out of ramona right now is that like like he is almost like her knives or her lisa in a way where it's like and I think also, like, a lot of times what people see in Scott is just that, like, he doesn't suck. <laughs> like, he is often, like, <laughs> sort of, like, a default option for people who are, like, either, like, coming from, like, bad situations or who, like, have not had romantic relationships before. And, like, mm-hmm. just having someone who is, like, cool and treats you nicely is, like, enough <laughs> for you. Yes, like volume four basically opens with Ramona saying, Scott, I think you're the nicest guy I've ever uh, dated, to which she replies, that's kind of sad. And it is, like, it's really sad. And it is, yeah. (laughs) And not to say, like, not that he's not nice at all, but yeah, for him to be the nicest guy you've ever dated, at least at this point in the book, is kind of sad. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, I think the most, like, evocative moment of this sort of whole confrontation moment where he like professes his love to Ramona is where he is like we can make this relationship work is what he says Mm -hmm. which is like I feel like that's like sort of like the defining moment in a lot of ways because it's like it's not just about like a relationship continuing like the Mm -hmm. I think that the exes up to this point have sort of felt like roadblocks on like an otherwise smooth path. Whereas this is sort of recognizing the fact that like a relationship is something that like is worked on and developed over time and like, isn't just like smooth sailing that like something that you can just like let pass you by in the way that Scott has up to this point with like all his relationships. Right. Yeah. And and, like, a thing that you have to be committed to because otherwise like it will inevitably just sort of like collapse under its own weight. Yes. And yeah, exactly. The the idea that like you have to put in effort to like make it work rather than 
it's like either it's good or if something is in the way then it's bad like a relationship isn't something that is inherently good in and of itself if that makes sense yeah it's it's like the recognition on scott's part that like doing things that are difficult or scary is like part of what is you know goes into being in a successful relationship and then his ability to express that at this point for ramona is kind of like oh like he has been someone who is sort of a safe and easy option up to this point but is showing in this moment that like he could possibly be more than that yeah exactly and i think that like that's <laughs> surprising to ramona to some extent yeah like i do think there is definitely a reason why a like she likes hanging out she likes hanging out with roxy even though every time roxy is around she's kind of like this guy is like <laughs> what you're doing right now yeah and but yeah like i said like it is like her knives to some extent um, yeah which is funny to think about <laughs> it's amusing is there anything else that we need to cover um the duffer mall is of Did course you... depicted did you have uh, special features in these volumes? Yes. The, well, the one in volume three, it's just the free comic book day story with, uh, which is a really weird story. Like with um, what's the name of the character? The Haley. I keep thinking Haley Stein, Winifred Haley. Do you know that? Did you read this? I don't think I have this. No. So it's just like, it's like the free comic books at day story where, they are get. They appear to be going to Scotiabank Theater to see a movie. Uh huh. And then there's like this poster of, I guess like it takes place between volumes three and four, and there's some reference to like ninjas, and so that's probably like what the connection is. But it's like Winifred Haley, who is like this teen star who's doing an action movie. I'm not sure what like that's supposed to be representative of at this time in like moviedom, but. Uh-huh. These like characters from the poster like come to life and fight Scott. And then also like there's a post there's like a, a piece of concept art where Winifred Haley is depicted and I guess she was like for some kind of halfway volume, like a volume two and a half or whatever. Uh-huh. Now we can't talk about point fives <laughs> extensively again here. <laughs> well, certainly, certainly. Be advised. Um so do, do yours have like the like in volume four for me there's like a bonus uh uncanny como comic don't think i have uncanny como now como real person are you aware of this i think i assumed he was this? real did you hear about this yes he is he is a real guy slow-mo como uh on twitter <laughs> but he's just he's literally just like another like toronto area like comics guy that brian Lee o'malley knew who knew like three people and so he was like como that guy knows everybody right <laughs> putting him in the comic <laughs> yeah it is it is a very funny bit to be sure he it has his skull ring <laughs> that is like the kind of like i think that Brian Lee Valley is very adept at like random humor or like because like he draws from so many influences like he can do like I think what's what is like most funny or like what is very funny often is he will like 
take something that feels like it's from a completely different like piece of media and just insert it in. And so like it is like a bit of a non sequitur, but it also like feels like it's evoking something very specific. Like Como's skull ring, which whispers Scott's name, and Como says it's <laughs> from the future. <laughs> uh speaking of very good bits uh my volume four <laughs> as the like last page before the back cover like literally last page yes has this the oh, will it load no. i i have it's, it in front but, of yeah, me it's, here <laughs> it's a r- it is like the thing when it's you open so uh, a manga of like in the way you would read a traditional book uh left to right that's like stop this is the end of the book like go back it has that as like the last page and then has like an instruction manual for like how to read a normal book <laughs> that's really funny i had never seen that before that is also like very evocative of like a very specific time in culture when like manga was yeah. new and all like and all the manga had that like reading your manga thing <laughs> this is the back it, of the it book it is like it is the kind of thing where <laughs> It does feel like if you read that joke and you don't laugh, like, you might not like this book that much. (laughs) Yes, and it's also, like, it is a thing where it's so specifically evocative of, like, 2005 in a way Mm -hmm. that, like, the whole book does kind of feel that way. That, like, I mean, like, it's it's not a book that feels dated because, like, it's almost, like, so specific that that makes it, like, feel a little timeless it's like a period piece yeah now, it's, later. Like, it's like a t- it's a bit of a time capsule but yeah like that the whole thing is like very like specifically 2005 like there are some places where it's like i know this place and like it looks different now <laughs> and so it's like i recognize like it's weird that this is like what i'm seeing when i know it to be something different like i had a specific example of that but i can't remember it now but it was like I saw a Dundas location where like, in there. Yes, I think. that was part of is it that, for sure. Yeah, it's got a, like the huge LG sign. Yeah, and the, the there's one store. <laughs> this is like very specific, but it's like <laughs> it's like I know where you're looking, and that store, which is a Gap, is an H and M now. <laughs> 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 that was like a very weird moment. Uh, on the back of Volume Three, there is a pull quote from the Globe and Mail, Toronto Zone. Um, no, Montreal. What? Really? The Globe and Mail's Montreal? <laughs> yes. Oh, I have a strong Toronto association with it. Anyways, it describes that. Scott Pilgrim as Canada's answer to Tank Girl. Hmm. What do we think of that? <laughs> Not really familiar with Tank Girl, I will okay. say. That is, that is another... Um, okay, it is Toronto. Uh, Why Jamie... did I think it was Montreal? Uh, I don't know. Weird. Continue, please. Um, that's another Jamie Hewitt, Hewlett, Hewitt, the gorillas guy, um, is also one of the creators of Tank Girl. So I was amused because we talked a little bit about how, especially see, like we, we sort of see that style influence and O'Malley has said that's a style influence, but I just, other than that, I guess there's a sort of like punkishness to tank girl that like and and because of the association with gorillas as well there maybe is that sort of like music connection that prompts the comparison comparison. and and it does have like i haven't read a ton of tank girl but 
my well from what i have read and my general impression it does seem to have a certain uh manic chaotic energy that i would say long or, or stretches of scott pilgrim also have but i yeah I, I was surprised by the comparison i wasn't sure if you'd have enough familiarity with tank girl to uh to comment no certainly not to comment to that extent isn't like tank girl like post-apocalyptic kind of Yes, it is. Yeah, so I don't really quite get the comparison there. Um, one other thing, you know, we were talking about sort of how the the humor and the style sort of starts to uh, cohere in these couple of volumes. The we one get some epic fourth wall breaks. Yes, that's what I want to talk about. Is like <laughs> they talk about volumes. Like I think the first mention is like Envy's. Like we've already spent a quarter of a, of a volume in like this area. Yeah. And like Crash and the Boys, when they do their like music magic, make a reference. Or someone says something about like, I wonder if this will be a relevant plot point later on in the book. Yeah. That like, it, that which like, part of me is like, you don't really need this. Uh, like it is, it is funny. <laughs> a big part of me is like that. I, I think we're just fourth wall averse generally. I think so. And also just like, it's very of the time and like obviously meta textual stuff and fourth wall breaking only became more prevalent as time went on. And it's also like, because this book is so adept at like having sort of meta textual elements and being sort of postmodernist in the way that it draws in like influences and concepts from other media and like sort of mashes it into its own aesthetic. It's like, you don't need to like, you have that and like can cohere it in such a successful way that like you, you don't need to be cheap and be like yeah i i do think that that's I, I said we're fourth yeah i said we're fourth wall averse but as i think about like i don't think that that's it so much as the like now very like derided deadpool like i know i'm in a comic book like the like character turn and wink and like explicitly say in the dialogue like we're in a comic book i think is more so what we are opposed to whereas the rest of the book like incorporates those those more sort of like meta elements in a way that is much less sort of like and did we mention that we freaking are in the comic book yeah and like it doesn't it doesn't break the fourth wall but it certainly is not like it has these like extra aesthetic elements that are like heightening it in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. yeah i mean knives chow and kim pine make out that's crazy (laughs) they do they sure do i assume Um, it's never brought up again i don't think so yeah i don't think so (laughs) um now knives chow dyes her hair with the red stripe and then gets her highlights punched out i feel like that is a trope that has become a lot more discussed in terms of like the asian girl with the like dyed streak in her hair do you th- like? Do you think that was supposed to be like a comment on that trope at the time? I think it's less about her being an Asian girl specifically, and more just about like the the streak is sort of like representative of her like being a bit of a poser and trying to like ingratiate herself with like the Scott crowd, and oh, then and then like that that's sort of like a rejection of that in some ways is like let me knock the like fake fake rock girl out of you so that you can start to sort of like become more like aware of yourself right are you you're familiar with the like asian girl hair streak thing not maybe not in the way that you're saying like <laughs> i can i can envision it but is this like it's, something it's that was just, talked about 
Yeah, it's like the the recognition that it's extremely common f- to have uh, like female Asian characters in media who either have a dyed streak in their hair or add a dyed streak in their hair at some point and the way that it kind of is used to signal uh, like switch from the very sort of like demure and like a submissive Asian woman into like the rebellious Asian woman with an edge. Right. And you can tell because now she's got the streak in her hair. Um, but I don't feel like that was something that was really in the culture so much at the time. But having the street, like having the highlights punched out of her hair does right. feel like it's a joke about that somehow. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. But but then like, like we were saying, like, was Brian Lee O'Malley like as like, racially i mean like having having <laughs> like the 17 year old chinese girlfriend does definitely feel like the, an intentional move on his part like i don't think she's chinese by accident certainly but i don't i to me it always read as more just like it was her like trying to be punk or like because like you know like two, mid-2000s that's like fallout boy type beat kind of period yeah. and so like having like the dyed streak or just dyed hair in general among that group, I think, would would make a lot of sense. Right. It also does feel like it's potentially a, like, similar to the, like, is that your natural color? It, like, might just be, like, a black and white joke as well to be like, the highlights were punched out of her hair. Maybe. And it's just, like, the same picture. Maybe. Uh, oh. <laughs> Indeed. Sorry, go on. Well, I, know, I was just going to ask you if there was anything else that you thought needed discussing. Uh, Scott wears a CBC shirt at some point. How can you not? Stan. Wish I had a CBC shirt. We must. Um, yeah, I don't think so, really. Did um, I tell you about the uh, video NRK Top 10 hoodie that I wanted to get? You sent me a link to it. <laughs> it sold out <laughs> said, very quickly. <laughs> I believe you sent it to me and we're like, need you to stop me from buying this or like need a good reason to not buy this. And I was like, you've come to the wrong place. Yeah, I did go back and try and buy it and it was sold out. So a blessing in disguise, perhaps. Was that like an Ontario like local thing or was that broader video in arcade top 10? That was definitely a local Ontario like YTV thing. Like this, uh, it was this collection that this website was doing that was like no no i mean like i mean like the production of a video in arcade no, video top arcade 10 and arcade top 10 was like shot in toronto right and like yeah and aired on like tvo ytv but yes Ooh, back in stock i think i might just have to buy this uh anyways <laughs> is there anything else i mean like i assume there's no awards talk or anything we talked last there episode is no, no about how yeah. it wasn't really getting recognized at this time which is like that is surprising. It's like it's it's growing. Like yeah. and definitely after volume 4 comes out like it's growing. It's just not getting nominated for awards sure. in like the year that they're getting released. They're also coming out like pretty fast. Like he does all six volumes in 7 years. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. To me like without knowing when stuff comes out, it do- it does feel like it's like a volume a year kind of thing. That is like the vibe I get from the books. It definitely is, <laughs> which feels like, I guess, they're, how long is like the average volume? It's like 200 something. Yeah, I think it it beefs up a little bit more in these set of volumes. It's more, I guess it's still like low 200s because there's a lot of, like my version has a lot of extras. So I think it right. is like about 200 pages, most of them. Yeah, which is not a crazy 
output for a single year. But um, no, but it's like you know, it's basically ten issues of a twenty-two page comic, which is like yep. pretty much what you would Whoops. expect, especially for a writer cartoon, like a cartoonist who is writing and drawing their work to produce. I read a like stat or something once that Jack Kirby had a month where he produced 144 pages, which I was like, that's the most deranged thing I've ever heard. <laughs> like literally a full trade paperback in one month. Like I can't. And was can't probably like fathom. writing out the scripts by hand or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, I think for this panel, I'll do a collage. <laughs> yeah. Like, in this one, the universe explodes. <laughs> <laughs> uh but yes uh, anyways yeah they they're coming out pretty regularly but as we have already talked about like the momentum is definitely more so the thing than the like there's not like a turning point where it's suddenly like hey everyone's very into this now it's just like keeps getting like bigger and bigger and bigger yeah and i also i feel like we keep seeing i feel like we see this in turning red as well and maybe in Maybe in the F word, <laughs> the movie. Uh, oh, is that the one that, where? Yeah, is that the one where um, Daniel Radcliffe and Zoe Kazan are friends? Unless they're not. Yes, that's correct. I feel like we see the same like perspective in all three of those, where it's like in Etobicoke. Is that a Toronto movie? Yeah, it is. That's weird, right? Um, Adam Driver and Mackenzie, what's her face, are both also in that, right? Adam yeah. Driver is definitely in it. Uh, like early Adam Driver. Yeah. Isn't he dating Mackenzie Davis? I think you might be right. Let me just double check that intel. But yes, it is like a very, I think like I haven't <laughs> seen Girls. Uh, Mackenzie Davis is in it, yes. I haven't seen Girls, but it is like how I imagine Adam Driver behaves in Girls. Where like he's more of like a scumbum, the guy who like is like a weird hippie, but then is like wise sort of despite himself. <laughs> I have also not seen Girls, but I feel like I once read an article where he was described as having a caveman-like energy. Oh, I mean, Adam Driver in general. A bit of a caveman-like energy. Um, uh, yeah, sure. Which, which, like, I think there is sort of, like, a certain, like, hipster-slash-hippie-ish, like, component to that. But I think a lot of it is, like, uh, there's also, like, kind of an almost Ron Swanson-y... <laughs> sort of like aspect to it as well maybe that makes sense he's like very like manly. just that sort of like very yeah like gruff masculinity yeah. as well yeah but yes the, the, like i feel like they all have the same shot of like you're in etobicoke looking east towards the city <laughs> i feel like i have like a very distinctive Some b-roll yeah a very distinctive image of that and just to bring it full circle we already talked about daniel radcliffe on this episode i just realized or was Indeed, that last yeah. episode uh that was last episode when we were talking about fake movies sure but dale radcliffe's character in what if is named wallace (laughs) (laughs) there you have it i did see that movie at one time and thought it was fine i also thought it was fine it's a little bit like problematic i think in terms of like the way it depicts their relationships with each other um as i recall um but as i recall i think we both kind of liked it (laughs) Wow, big self G as I call it. Um, <laughs> uh, just really worked for me. I watched Ten Things I Hate About You last night, and and you couldn't stop thinking of me. He <laughs> he no. Um, and I I was like, what song is this? Because like it was like a guitar part starts, 
and then the song reveals itself to be one week. <laughs> but then I was like, the person I was watching it with, I was like, this is a remix. The guitar part is not like that in one week. <laughs> like, the drums sound different. This is very clearly not the original version of one week. It doesn't have a guitar intro. And everyone was like, shut up. <laughs> yes, exactly. Also, just while we're on the subject... I watched. I also watched Just Go With It, the uh, Adam Sandler, uh, Jennifer Aniston uh, vehicle. Is that that the no? That's blended. That I'm thinking. We're of. going to Africa. That's yeah. with Drew Barrymore. Yeah, they go to Hawaii in this one, so it's like basically the same thing, right? <laughs> with like someone else's kids <laughs> is uh, the whole thing. Well, it's, it's, it's Jennifer like Aniston's not either kids. Of their it's kids? Jennifer Aniston's okay. kids, but he is pretending to be married to Jennifer Aniston. You just right. have to go with it. It's a whole thing. Um, but in that... Just go with it. That's nothing. You're, like, just go for it. Is that what I believe that says in Mario no, I believe Party? that's from Beautiful Joe. <laughs> <laughs> it might just be. Now, when did Beautiful Joe come out? Because that is a game I would say has Scott Pilgrim energy. I think you're right. It is like, it's like 2003, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so, maybe, later. you know... Yeah, 2003 something in the water perhaps perhaps yeah down there around 2003 yeah, that's a good game <laughs> <laughs> so everyone go check out beautiful joe for the gamecube and i assume other platforms I believe it was on playstation 2 as well but yes also you might be thinking of birdo when she says that's as far as you go uh i don't think so but just to finish my thought just go with it weirdly has a lot of police mashups where it's a police song and another song mashed up <laughs> and uh-huh. it's never like really explicitly called out in the course of the movie it's just like a weird like recurring musical motif doesn't glee also do that <laughs> do mashups i would imagine so no yes. do a police mashup specifically probably i think they do one that is don't stand so close uh, to me don't stand so close to me and hot for teacher sure that makes sense Anyways, we because the teacher's freaking hot. Honestly, Mister Shoe could get it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's going to have to do it for us for today. Uh-huh. Uh, you can follow us at Got the Runs Pod on Twitter or email us at Got the Runs Pod at gmail dot com. Uh, you can follow me at C House and Jen on Twitter if you please. Uh, be sure to check out High Floor, Low Ceiling, and Bevy of Bevies, the, my other podcasts. Next week, we will be covering the final two volumes of Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> I thought you were about to say what drink you're going to be doing <laughs> on Bevy of Bevies, and I was like, okay. <laughs> these, these plugs are going too far. No, 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 no. Uh, but do be sure to check that out if you haven't listened yet. It's a, it's a great time. Everyone's been praising it lately, so we're getting tons of critical acclaim. But yes, anything else... Uh, that needs mentioning before we sign off i don't think so <laughs> well then until next time to be continued, continued.